Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, co-hosting with Bruce Kelly. This episode is sponsored by Schwab Asset Management. We have an excellently special guest today, Emily Kuchel, Manager, Financial Wellness at eMoney Advisor. Emily has a PhD in Applied Family Science and a Master's in Financial Planning, which is key to her work focusing on understanding the effects the effect of financial behaviors and financial decision making on personal and financial wellness. So this is all that that psychology of investing stuff that we're always uh, trying to figure out and follow along with. But uh, first, before we get to Emily, how you doing, Bruce? How you been been this week? Uh, good, Jeff. Very busy. It's it's nice to have uh, someone like Emily on to talk about the process of money and how people feel about you know investing. And stuff it's a little different for us so i'm looking forward to this yeah it is emily how are you thank you for being here yeah thank you both for having me i'm excited about this well you sound super smart so we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> dig right in here <laughs> um it's always good to have a phd on the show to kind of kind of bring up the average i'm going to start with the difference between financial psychology and behavioral finance. And we talk a lot at Investment News and we write about behavioral finance a lot. We have a few go-to people that we that will go to for that kind of thing. But uh, let's first define what we're talking about, okay, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting because uh, we, we at eMoney, we actually asked advisors kind of a similar question. Uh, we said, hey, tell us, tell us if you know the difference. We're, we're curious. There's two different you know, kind of philosophies out there right now. We have financial psychology, which is gaining a lot of traction and buzzworthy. And then we have behavioral finance, which has been around for, for some time. And ultimately what we discovered is they have some idea about it, um, but to, to help level set for everyone. Um, so behavioral finance is going to start with the works of some some psychologists, Daniel Kahneman, Amos Traversky um, are the most notable players. And then we have uh, Robert Schiller. They gain a ton of prominence in the 1970s and the 1980s. And they help us really make sense of human cognition, biases, heuristics, um, and how that helps or how that ultimately impacts financial behaviors. And what they do is they use a lot of experiments, they use research, and they demonstrate kind of firsthand that humans and financial markets are not always rational. And the decisions that we ultimately make are often flawed. So in terms of the behavioral finance side of things, if you're looking to understand how emotions and biases drive share prices, behavioral finance can often answer those questions and has a ton of explanations behind that. So if we turn to the financial psychology, we understand that, of course, having that investment related you know, decision making information is, is necessary and, of course, super impactful. Um, but it's not necessarily sufficient enough for the way that financial planners who are taking a more holistic advice approach help clients with their personal goals with their own financial well-being. So in terms of the FinPsych uh, perspective, it draws from a number of bodies of work inside of financial psychology. But one of the simplest ways to think about it um, was, was said by Dr. Brad Klontz. And he said, it's just simply a study of what we do with our money. It's understanding our beliefs about money, our histories, how all of that was formed 
many years ago, often before we even knew that it was happening, and how that informs our decision making today from our spending, our behaviors, all of that. It's really the why behind money. So that's that's kind of the difference that we see when we're looking at these two terms that we often see uh, used synonymously, but they are quite quite different. Jeff, I think we should warn our listeners there's going to be a test at the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> so take notes, yeah. everybody out there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, interesting, you know, you said uh, on the behavioral finance side, humans and markets are not always rational. Maybe you could say they're rarely rational, but the 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 financial psychology part that that is interesting to me is it is that deeper and beyond the actual portfolio management and the you know the the hard numbers and stuff like that is that more of the the way myself jeff benjamin might view money or or financial security or something like that absolutely so Financial psychology is going to speak to really a deeper range of emotions than that of what we see in terms of the behavioral finance. So this is going to include our relationship with money and and how that was formed. So for example, um, whether or not somebody talked to you about money when you were growing up or even the lessons that you observed about money from those around you and how all of that has started to inform you as Jeff Benjamin and the way that you value money, the way that you see money as as being useful, um, and how that informs even the relationship that you've ultimately formed with money and the relationship that you have with others and money. So um, if you have children, the way that you kind of value their relationship with money, the way that you value relationship and money um, in terms of life partners and, and marriages. We all bring in a whole host of experiences and, and money histories, if you will, that actually are incredibly informative into who we are as adults. And it, it continues to evolve over our lifetime. If I asked you what your values are around money and your priorities around money today, and I asked you 10, 15 years ago, there's probably some that are the same or similar, but I would also probably suggest or, or assume that there are those that have changed just based off of, of life and how all of that evolves for us. Yeah, I, that makes sense to me now, more sense to me now. Um, my, this sounds, financial psychology sounds a lot more personal and, and individual. And, and I'm kind of wondering how you at eMoney are are able to apply that because yeah, I mean you're I don't know if you're working with individual advisors, but you certainly can't be working with all of their individual clients, right? Right. So in terms of what we're doing inside of eMoney, right now we're doing a lot of research to really understand this conjunction of financial planning and financial psychology. Now, what we're seeing in that research is when we ask planners and when we ask clients about the importance of exactly what you said, which is really, really hot right now, is talking about the consumers expecting personalization in their financial plans, we find that advisors and and CSPs in particular are saying that personalization is one of the most important pieces to the financial planning process. And the majority of them are saying, 
look, we're not taking a cookie cutter approach to the financial planning process. It doesn't work that way anymore. And if we if we think about it, even in terms of technology, if we look beyond even the fintech space, as technology has evolved, it's given people people greater access to information. So back when a lot of our financial planning associations and kind of membership organizations were developing, the internet wasn't publicly available. So what that allows the financial planner to do is be the number one or the primary source of that financial planning information. Now, as we have greater access to all things through through Google and other search services, of course, they're no longer the primary source of that information. So clients are demanding and expecting that I not only get financial knowledge from you, but that you actually understand me, that you're going to give me a personalized service the same way that Amazon knows me personally, Netflix knows me personally. They have all of these personalized techniques and that's inside of technology. But when I meet with my financial advisor, I expect you to not only, again, have that knowledge, but to really see me and take in kind of all of these factors of my life from the financial stress that I feel, the anxiety that I feel, um, and help build build that confidence. So expanding that value. Let's talk about some of the things that you're learning. I'm sure you're doing a, a ton of research for e-money, analyzing all this behavior. How are younger advisors using financial psychology in their overall planning process? It's interesting when we talk about the younger generation. So when we were doing this research around you know, how advisors are generally understanding financial psychology, we found that younger advisors, which we noted as 45 and under, actually are more familiar with financial psychology. And just in general, in terms of generations, we know that younger generations are actually doing a lot better job than previous generations about talking about money. Millennials are talking to their friends about money. Siblings are talking to their colleagues about it. Uh, Gen Z, so those that are born after 1996, they're discussing mental health more than any other generation before. And they're the first generation to grow up with the internet and to have all of this available. And so they are exceptionally comfortable sharing kind of their personal stories and insights. And so when we have somebody like the CFP board come along and they do their study in 2021, they find out, hey, this is this is what planners are asking for. They quickly get to it. You know, they, they put the financial psychology into the, the CFP exam and younger generations are tending to be more open to talking about money, to talking about this softer side of money because it's not so foreign to them. And it's giving us a really significant shift in how we've historically viewed talking about money in terms of financial planning and in terms of just our life. But with all of that being said, of course, you know, all planners at all stages could could benefit from the psychology of financial planning. But our, our younger advisors are actually going to be required to have this competency that's set by the CFP board because it's now a part of the exam. So it's it's now an expectation of the advisor. Schwab Asset Management is proud to support the Investment News Podcast. As one of the nation's largest ETF providers, Schwab Asset Management offers educational resources that can help advisors build on their ETF expertise. Did you know that ETF investors consider cost a top factor in choosing an ETF? Or that there is a growing interest in personalization among ETF investors? 
For more ETF insights, tools, and analysis, visit schwabassetmanagement.com forward slash ETF know-how. That's schwabassetmanagement.com forward slash ETF know-how. You know, a lot of what you're saying, Emily, uh, talking about the, you know, looking at what the needs and wants are of investors and the personalization especially, it, I know you're coming at it from your, you know, your, your psychology background and all that expertise and research, but it sounds like a lot of AI also, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think we're going to have to lean into technology to help us in this process, especially because a lot of this is saying that we're going to need to spend a little bit more time with the clients themselves. So what we can do is we can leverage technology to help us in that data gathering stage to be more efficient in our financial planning workflows so we have the time to get this more subjective data with the clients themselves, which is ultimately going to help us inform, you know, the the holistic approach that we're taking with our clients. But we will absolutely have to lean into the technology to help us um, find that time with them. Yeah, I, I got another question here for you, and we're going to get Bruce in here, obviously. Um, what what are some of the um, the barriers to implementing financial psychology in an advisor's day-to-day practice? I mean, unquestionably, there there are benefits to financial psychology, but there, of course, you have to be aware of any barriers when you're starting to implement a new strategy or a new technique. Um, So one of the things is, how do I start to bring this into my practice? I've, I've had a certain way that I've been talking to my clients. They know it, they expect it, and you know, the people they're referring to me know it and and they expect it. So one of the things is to, with your existing clients, help to start setting the stage by introducing any of these new techniques that we're, we're kind of talking about into something that you guys are going to explore together, that you're going to encourage their honest feedback as you go through this. If it's with a new client, start with that being a part of your introduction and explaining your scope of service, what they can expect from working with you. Um, but utilizing these techniques, I mean, it's it's going to take a little bit of time to be comfortable. And one of the things that we saw is that planners feel like there's been a lack of education on the subject related to FinSight to feel that they have the sufficient knowledge to be able to, to start implementing it right away. So perhaps one of the biggest barriers for planners is just starting to get a better understanding for it themselves, whether that's um, reaching out and, and going through some of the educational courses or the books that, it, that are out there. But one of the things that is suggested is to start exploring your own money history, get a little bit more comfortable with with your own experiences and opening that up. So educating yourself. And then that can ultimately help your clients embrace it because you've been through it, you understand it, um, and you know yourself a little bit better. So you've, you've naturally become a little bit more comfortable with it. Can you, can you talk, just uh, give us a couple of tangible examples of the techniques you're talking about though, aside from looking at your own uh, relationship with money and your own history, something that an advisor might, way, a way an advisor might implement this or, or try to introduce clients to it, the idea of it. Yeah, so there's going to be, um, when we're thinking about actual techniques, we can lean into what we know about um, even more kind of counseling techniques like active 
adaptive listening or exquisite listening, which is really making sure that you are allowing the client to be the the primary source of the information. So one of the things in financial planning is it's it's easy sometimes to jump to solutioning or to fixing problems. And utilizing financial psychology, it's actually going to say that the client knows knows best. They know their own money stories and money histories and experiences, and that can actually be super informative to the financial plan that we're putting together. So looking at techniques like active listening and making sure that you allow the client to um, explore that, utilizing open questions, those types of techniques. But if you're looking for something even more tangible than that, there are tons of uh, worksheets that can help you unearth different values for your clients. So allowing them to go through a little bit of an exploration phase. Um, there are techniques around asking about, tell me your first memory of money or your most significant memory of money. And oftentimes that unlocks a story that they haven't thought about in some time. And we can often relate whatever that significant story was to something that um, is happening today. So one of them, just as a quick example, uh, Dr. Klontz talks about this, that um, his, his grandfather lived through the Great Depression and didn't trust the investment markets. And so he saw that passed down through his father and ultimately into his life, this inherent distrust of financial markets. So even just this experience from a previous generation has been passed down that's now informing the way that we feel, think about money. Okay. Bruce? Hi, Emily. Uh, where are you teaching right now? Yeah, currently teaching at uh, NYU. I am teaching in their master's program for financial planning. So just, do you mind just talking about your students a little bit? What are your courses you actually teach and who your students are and why would they take your class? So the students that I teach, they're in the master's program of financial planning at NYU. And the course that I teach is actually called Money and Relationships. And so we do a really deep dive into all things financial psychology, financial therapy, financial counseling related. And that course is designed for us to understand ourselves as um, through our own money histories and lenses. And then ultimately what that means when I'm working with a client to be able to help them understand how these influences can be affecting the financial plan. One of the examples that um, I recently had talking to an advisor was saying that, you know, I met with a client and she came in and said, money freaks me out. It just freaks me out. His response was, I think money freaks everybody out. And she said, oh, you, re you really think so? And he said, yes, absolutely. Now, my question to him was, did that response change your approach to the way that you talked to her during the financial planning process and, and you know, in showing her the financial planning? He said, oh, absolutely. I changed my whole approach. I was, um, of course, aware that she said, hey, this is, this is something I'm a little bit hesitant on. It's that little bit of information that changes the approach, that changes our awareness and how we're serving clients. And so we look at that in, in this course. We also look at the family dynamics that we all come from. Our family histories inform who we are, our culture, our community, all of that informs how we function today in terms of our financial 
behavior in our own financial um, planning. Yeah, this is this is real psychology. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> in other words, yes. I feel like I'm on Dr. Freud's couch or something <laughs> here. Absolutely. You know, I mean, you are into how people think about a specific thing. Yes. It just happens to be money. Yes. You know, and 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 investing. So if I'm a student in your class, I'm studying to be a financial advisor or a financial planner or or uh, an investment banker or what? So inside of NYU's program in particular, they have two different tracks. They have one that's going to be more heavily uh, statistical. And then we have another track that is behavioral finance. So those okay. that are looking to have this, you know, kind of softer informed approach in terms of, of servicing their financial planner or sorry, their financial planning clients. So you have on one side of the, of the lecture hall, you have your quantitative geeks type people. Yep. And then the other, you have your planner type people, yep. I guess. Yeah. You definitely have more of your, your numbers people and then the people that, um, you know, are, are diving in definitely to the more emotional side of, of the finances. And then just looking through your, you know, your, your work history here, you've worked on projects to help couples with money. Yes, absolutely. What's could you just tell us about that? And I think that that would seem to be relevant with everybody. Yeah. Um, you know, we're working on you know putting money aside for my kids' five twenty nine plans and all that kind of stuff. So, what what happens there with the psychology of what you do? So oftentimes, when we are coming together in in relationships, committed relationships. Prior to that, we've really been kind of governing our own financial management based off of my own financial priorities, my own financial right. goals. And now I'm coming and meeting up with somebody and they have their own financial goals, priorities, and the way that they've been managing their, their money up until this point. Now, when it comes to the couple coming together and perhaps merging that, or even just looking at putting together joint goals, we oftentimes see financial conflict uh, start to arise because the way that we talk about money, the way we spend money or save money is often an expression of our values around money. And so I now need to coordinate or harmonize the way that we're going to approach this, whether that's saving for a kid's education versus, hey, I want to put more money away for retirement. We're expressing two different value sets there and we've got to get on the same page about it to kind of jointly commit to whatever our financial household goals or couple goals are going to be so we do a lot of exploration in terms of the value set we again go back to even some of these money histories which was absolutely fascinating asking um <clears throat> asking couples to tell one another their most significant money kind of experiences because most couples didn't know the stories. They'd never heard that from their partner or their spouse before because it just wasn't something that they had thought about. And they start making connections about, oh, that makes sense, why why you have said this or why you do certain things or why I'm irritated about. So couples don't talk to each other about money is, is kind of a rule of thumb that you've perceived in your career. Absolutely. I mean... Unfortunately, huh. as many, uh, most couples will say, like, we should talk about money. We, we, we believe that it's important, but unfortunately, we don't see that that many people do. We weren't really taught how to talk about money. We were 
yeah, maybe taught about money, but not taught right. how to talk about money. Huh. I think that's fascinating. Jeff? Yeah, it is interesting that, you know, some of the stuff you're talking about, Emily, for example, as soon as we get off this podcast, I'm going to go ask my wife her most significant <laughs> thoughts about money, and, and she's probably going to... I don't know what her answer will be. She probably won't ask me what mine are because she probably won't care. But what what do you do with that information, though? I mean, you know, and, and, and like what are basically what I'm asking for is like, give us some free takeaways here. You know, we can try and be better at all this stuff. And I know, like you just said, couples don't talk to each other about money. Well, what if couples? I'll use myself as an example. What what if we did talk about money more? How would that, what are, what is that going to improve our relationship? Is it going to improve, improve our perspective on, on, on money, on markets, on investing? I mean, this is ultimately about wealth management and financial services, right? Absolutely. Yes. So ultimately what we see is that couples report greater relationship satisfaction, greater financial satisfaction. It helps us come together in deciding our joint financial goals. Now, when I am having to skip out on, you know, a girl's vacation, it's because I understand that we both decided and we both committed to saving money for our child's education. Education is really important to us. That's the value that we pulled out from the conversation that we, you know, had this discovery about. And so that. Uh, limitation or what feels like a limitation in, in my spending or my lifestyle feels a little less consequential because I know that he's also making some of those same sacrifices because we both committed and believe in this joint goal together. So it reduces some of that, um, you know, being resentful and feeling like I don't have a say in any of this. You know, one person is experiencing kind of a better financial life for one reason or another. It also helps unearth power balances and feeling like I have a say in this relationship too, that it really, when we make a joint decision, that it's actually 50-50, not that we made a joint decision, but really it's their decision. It helps us align inside of the relationship, which ultimately helps us align financially. What can people do? What can our audience do? Our audience of mostly financial professionals do to uh, to kind of get more immersed in this. Are there things you would recommend? Maybe books, podcasts, or can people call? Yeah, you? Oh, it's a good starting point. Yeah, can people call you directly, Emily, and ask you? Questions? Yeah. <laughs> no, don't bother Emily. <laughs> she's a, she's, a, she's got a class to teach. For that's out that's yeah. true. That's true. Uh, no, I mean there's. There's a ton of great resources out there. A lot of people are writing books about it right now. If you simply Google the psychology of financial planning, you'll see the book from the CFP board. You'll see the book from Dr. Chafin, Clonson Chafin. They have um, a workbook associated with it as well. So if you're looking for some of those tangible takeaways and you want to see a worksheet or how some of the experts are suggesting to talk about it, they've got it all mapped out. There's different, you know, kind of mini courses or, or badge courses out there. If you want to take a little bit more time with it and uh, spend some time with the education and, and learn from the experts out there. But one of the first things to do is, you know, get comfortable with it yourself. Say that it's it's okay that we explore this and we kind of talk about the softer side of money, which maybe feels a little uncomfortable or different. Um, so get a little comfortable with it, you know, grab a book, start doing a little bit of your own 
self-education and ultimately find what works best for you. Nobody's saying to go out there and we're expecting you to be a financial therapist or psychologist. In fact, we don't want you to do that. We just want you to have the education to be aware that people are having these experiences and that we go a little bit further beyond the numbers um, and that you you take the time to, to experience that. And if you're, uh, as you said, if you're studying to be a CFP now, this is part of the program, right? It absolutely is. Yeah, it is now a requirement of the CFP exam. It makes up 7% of the CFP exam. So all of your next-gen financial planners or your financial planners from March of 2022, they're being required to have the competency of the psychology of financial planning. So oh, that's when they started, Emily, in March of March, 2022? March of 2022 was the first, oh. the first exam to have the psychology of financial planning. So if anyone listens to this podcast, uh, they would have a leg up on that. So there you go. There's that. We can promote it that way too. All right. Emily, thank you very much for being here. Really good stuff. Uh, yes, thank you so much. Insightful. Uh, I, I've got a bunch of notes here. I'm going to go ask my wife about how she <laughs> spends her money and, and why she doesn't ask me how I spend money as well. So, you know, we're, we're all learning here. Absolutely. Well, I mean, cheers to you all discussing it, and I hope it goes well, and maybe she'll surprise you and, and ask you about yourself too. <laughs> maybe. Who knows? All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Launching every Monday, it's another episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guest this week, Emily Kuchel. We also want to thank our sponsor, Charles Schwab Asset Management, as well as our producer, Angelica Hester. You can find the podcast, of course, at investmentnews.com, as well as Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. If you have any questions for us, you can reach out to Jeff via Twitter. His handle is at BenjiWriter. I'm there too. Mine is at BD News Guy. Stay tuned and we'll be talking to you next week.